Hi, everyone. I'm Ben Norton, and this is Geopolitical Economy Report. Today, I have the pleasure of being joined by two friends of the show, Radhika Desai and Alan Freeman, who are speaking to us from Russia. Right now, they're in Moscow, and they were previously in St. Petersburg. They're going to talk about their trip. They attended a conference of economists speaking about the economic situation in Russia. And I'm going to pick their brains about the effects of Western sanctions, the integration of Russia's economy with other Asian economies, the, the process of Eurasian integration. De-dollarization has really picked up momentum in the past several weeks. And of course, the last year of the war in Ukraine, and, and we're going to discuss the, the geopolitics of the war in Ukraine. But for people who don't know, Radhika and Alan are both um, directors of the Geopolitical Economy Research Group, and they are also part of the International Manifesto Group. And Radhika is a professor at the University of Manitoba, and Alan is an economist who previously worked for the mayor of London. Um, Radhika and Alan, can you just explain why you're in Russia, what your trip is about, and what, you know, just in the first few minutes, what your overall takeaways thus far has been of your trip to Russia? Well, first of all, let me say that this trip is the result of a very, very long-standing set of collaborations that Alan and I has. And I should say Alan has an even longer connection with Russia than I have. Uh, but over the past uh, 10 to 15 years in particular, we have worked very closely with several different sets of intellectuals and activists in Russia. And of course, once we started working with one or two, then that proliferated. So uh, the reason we are here is because we were invited to attend uh, uh, several conferences. So the first one uh, is a uh, was the most important one, which is the St. Petersburg Economic Forum. And then growing out of that, uh, we are also invi invited to give a couple of talks at the Valdai Club, which where whose conferences we have attended now and then. And then finally, I was invited invited quite separately to be part of a conference at the higher economic uh, higher e economics school or the HES which is a very prestigious uh, economics focused university in Moscow so i'm going to do that as well um, and, and of course, once we were going to come here, we also uh, decided to be, meet as many of our friends as possible. So, but Alan, you want to add something? We are, we regularly visit Russia. People in Russia are always very glad to see people from the West and engage with them because it breaks the isolation, which has not been totally successful, but which the West has tried to impose. And we will be joined later by Dmitry Laskaris, who uh, purely by coincidence, is on a fact-finding visit to, uh, to to Russia lasting, I think, a month, which, which, which he will be able to explain to you, I hope. So that's part of the sort of dialogue. I should say, by the way, the sort of finicky thing, but this meeting was not the St. Petersburg Economic Forum. This was the St. Petersburg Economic Congress. And the reason that's important is there will be a St. Petersburg Economic Forum, and that's organised by basically a, a much a much higher level organization than we were with nevertheless the organization we were live i found we were with i find very interesting because the atmosphere in amongst economists and uh, for my sins i am an economist is very different to that that you find in the west and very different to that you even find in china because actually in china 
economics in the economics department is, is quite neoliberal. So what Xi Jinping and the leadership do is they basically go around that by establishing departments of Marxism. Here, the economists themselves are radicalizing. And every time I come here, they get more and more shirty about the things that they think should be done in the Russian economy that they say are not being done. So they're not worried about sanctions. They're worried about the response of their own government to the internal domestic structural challenges that Russia faces. Yeah, so, so to, to just add a couple of things to what Alan was saying, um, basically the uh, St. Petersburg Economic Congress, SPEC as it was called, um, is uh, is actually, you know, the, the over, while of course there were always your regular uh, neoliberals that were there, but they were only a handful, whereas the overwhelming majority of the economists who were there were taking a distinctly anti-neoliberal position, uh, recalling that actually state control, state direction and state uh, organized redistribution are the keys to Russia's economic survival in in. Um, in the face of sanctions, of course, um, and, and so on. So the overwhelming majority of economists were distinctly to the left, far to the left of what you hear, of course, in Western countries. And even as Alan says, in China, because in China, what happens is the entire spectrum is there. There are the neoliberals and of course, then there are the socialists and so on. Oh, and I, I should add one other thing. Um, and that is that, you know, one of the key, you know, I said that we have been involved with Russia for a very long time. And one of our key moments in our involvement, long term involvement with Russia has been that Alan and I were invited to a conference of activists uh, just the summer after Crimea was integrated into Russia. And there was a conference of activists coming, including activists from Donbass who were there and who at the time really, you know, they were very left wing. You remember that the Donbass and the Luhansk uh, republics originally claimed, you know, they, they, they were proclaimed as people's republics and so on. So they were there telling us about what they had done, how they had fought and, and what they were facing, including, of course, what had recently occurred at the time, which is the Odessa massacre of trade unionists. So we, we were there in Yalta. At this particular time, we even had signed a document which was called the Yalta Declaration. And at this conference, there were many, many people from Western countries as well as from Russia. Yes, there's one little one of these little indicators, sort of the criminologist study or whatever. So at the end of any gathering you have in Russia, there's always a dinner and then there are toasts and people give toasts to this, that and the other. So um, the, the per and they were introduced. They have an MC even. The, the person who got the greatest ovation was a member of the, the Communist Party of the Russian Federation, Smolin. And he was introduced by Comrade Smolin, by the MC, which was the occasion for great applause. So it's one of these little things that gives you some idea of the atmosphere. What has been the effect of Western sanctions on the Russian economy, at least that you've seen thus far, when the United States and the European Union escalated these very aggressive sanctions against Russia last March, the U.S. President Joe Biden claimed that the ruble would become rubble, he said. And instead of becoming rubble, the ruble is actually very strong. It's actually actually even stronger than it was before the Western sanctions. Um, what about capital flight, the loss of businesses and Western investment, um, what, what, is, what has been the impact of the sanctions that you assess? 
Uh, this is a really complex question, so I'm going to take it in bits, right? So, and Alan, feel free to just add whenever sure, whatever you sure, want. Sure. But, but okay, so number one, of course, when you impose sanctions, when businesses leave, because some businesses have left, but not all, we'll come to that in a minute, there will, of course, be economic pain. But what's remarkable about Russia is how uh, uh, relatively uh, uh, low, how, what, how relatively low the economic pain has been and that Russia's economy has, in fact, been quite resilient. So, you know, in um, spring last year, the IMF had predicted that Russia's economy would 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 be uh, uh, would be Russia's economic growth would be lowered, but like you know, would there would be minus twelve percent degrowth essentially in Russia. And in fact, it was you know, Russia has escaped with a <clears throat> relatively minor lower adjustment, you know, lower adjustment of two percent uh, uh, degrowth in 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 Russia. So that has actually been very good. Um, uh, uh, in terms of just walking around the streets of Moscow, you wouldn't really, and St. Petersburg, you know, Moscow is a very rich city, St. Petersburg, much less so. I would say that it definitely doesn't look like there's a war economy, maybe a certain amount of hardships. Certainly, we saw some boarded up shops, you know, shops which had fading signs of the old brand names, Western brand names that have left. But, you know, a lot of these brand names are still here. You know, I've taken some pictures. Subway is here, Burger King is here, Citibank is here, and these are just, uh, Benetton is here. I mean, there are so many Western brands which are still operating their shops here. So what you hear, you know, what the impression one gets in the West is, you know, there is, you know, no, no uh, brand names and so on. But actually, they, many of them are there. I don't know exactly how, but they are there. Um, as far as capital flight is concerned, there has been a considerable amount. And I would say that at least some of the economists we talked to, and we also had the good fortune of having a long conversation with Sergei Glazier, which we'll be publishing soon. Uh, but the, one of the things that he pointed out was simply that, um, uh, you know, the uh, while uh, Russia has, you know, taken a number of measures to improve its resilience against sanctions, the central bank has, of course, has had to impose some capital controls, but it has tried to minimize capital controls as much as possible. The result has been that capital flight has been quite substantial. It was already great before the uh, the current conflict began, and it has increased to a considerable extent by about 50% more. So this, uh, of course, needs to be dealt with. And we will come back to that later on, you know, Putin's policies and, and so on. But uh, the fact of the matter is that a lot of people would say, why don't we prevent this capital flight from taking place? And uh, this is not happening to the extent that is really necessary. And if such measures were taken, Russia would be even better off today. Yeah, I think that Russia is definitely on a learning curve. And uh, it hasn't yet learned everything that it, in our opinion, and in the opinion of people we talk to, because we're not just, you know, classic Westerners coming and telling the Russians what to do. We're reflecting what we've been told. Um, they, they haven't done as much as they could, which is interesting because if there are problems, they're self-inflicted. It wasn't an effect of the sanctions. And the other effect of the sanctions, which is very interesting, is to actually strengthen relations between Russia and a whole series of economies throughout the world. And these are not always the ones that you would have expected. So India-Russia India ties are increasing dramatically. This meeting between Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin was extremely dramatic, and I would say very comprehensive, because it, it, it basically outlined an entire program of joint initiatives, including cooperation on 
on science and technology. Everybody's focusing on, well, the, will the Chinese give Russia arms? Um, that's not that They may, they may not. But that's not really the full import of it is the degree of strength and um, economic collaboration. Now, that is shifting the whole center of gravity of Russia away from the West. It's a, a very dramatic reorganization. One of the things we discussed with Glazier, because he and his team for some time have been concerned with Central Asian integration, is the, 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 the logistics that are now being launched. So for a long time, 20 years, there's been an attempt to get a north-south corridor, a rail corridor, and that's just been on ice. Now it's going ahead full steam. So that as well as you've all seen about the sort of east-west and around the Cape, um, as it were, measures that are being introduced as a part of the, the Silk Belt and Road, but there is also an internal restructuring of Russia's relation to its, to its northern and southern economies and to its, uh, those economies to its, its, its east, which is, which is very significant. And we haven't heard the last of it by any means. Yeah, Alan, you mentioned the, the INSDC, the International North-South Transport Corridor. I think this is a very important infrastructure project that is not very well known in the West, but this is going to cut transit time from around 40 or 60 days, which goes through the Suez and the Mediterranean into Europe. Instead, the idea is to, to have trade that goes from Mumbai, the western coast of India, up through Iran and up to Russia. And this will also reduce significantly transit costs. This is a very significant project. It's, it's been discussed for years, but in the past year, I know the development of this project has, has accelerated. And it shows that with the Western sanctions on Russia, it has incentivized Moscow to prioritize its economic integration with other parts of Asia, as opposed to looking to the West. I'm curious if you think, given this trip that you have now in comparison with previous trips, if you think that the Russian leadership and Russian economists and such are looking much more to the East rather than to the West. Well, the economists have always been looking to the east. What is interesting is what's going on in the leadership. Now, that this is not exactly penetrable. Um, we will be having another discussion with uh, people from the Valdai Club who are quite close to the Kremlin. But it, it, it's less easy to see what's happening in the leadership than in the currents of opinion amongst wider layers of people such as these economists. But it's certainly, some things are just happening anyway uh, some things that should be happening are not. Uh, Glaziev gave us a very good example. He said that the opportunities for economic growth after sanctions were very high because you could do massive import substitution. Okay, you, you're, no, you're no longer buying stuff from the West. You can rebuild your, your own industries. But to do that, you have to have ca internal capital. And there was a very simple system that was implemented that gave them capital, which is that the oil exporters were asked to deposit their revenues as reserves in the Russian banks. Now, Nubulina uh, undid the central that. Bank the central bank governor undid that. And that's one of the reasons for the capital flight. As we say, it was, it was self-inflicted. Because you can't just expand your economy. You have to finance that expansion. So a vital sense of source of future finance. Hey, it's not the end of the world because you can correct mistakes like that. But it, it, it had a quite deleterious effect. Now, we don't know what 
the leadership was thinking when it authorised that. We don't even know if the leadership had any idea it was going on because the central bank leader has considerable autonomy. So this is all stuff that we're you know, trying to get a handle on and find out more about. Yeah, so I mean, in some, Ben, I think that the point is that the economic... So first of all, the indirect answer to your question, of course, Russia is looking much more to the East than it had before. I mean, you know, in a certain sense, one way of putting it would be that there has always been a debate in Russia, whether they are a European country or a Eurasian country. And I think that in a certain sense, the West's reaction, uh, uh, sorry, the, this, the current conflict and what the West's stance has been in this current conflict has essentially settled the matter for at least a generation or two, if not more, that Russia will be reoriented to the East. And I should add a couple of other things. Number one, um, Russians in general are terribly puzzled at the mm. attitude of Europeans in particular, who are essentially taking a lot of economic destruction. They are essentially accepting a very high degree of economic destruction, a destruction of their own economies uh, in uh, cutting their ties with Russia, which were actually quite mutually beneficial. And so they simply cannot understand the essentially the, the masochism of Europe, you know, the economic masochism of Europe. Why are they doing this? Um, and then, of course, the second point is that um, uh, 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 the Russian economic policy, as Alan says, they are on a learning curve. But I would also say that there are some interesting tensions within Russia where it seems to me mm. that there are some pressures, uh, perhaps coming from certain business groups and oligarchs or whatever. But there are some pressures that are essentially make, uh, 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 making the Putin administration maintain an economic policy stance and a central banking stance that is considerably more liberal than it should be and it need be. Because, and as a result of that, I would say if if, if this was embraced, if, or rather if this residual neoliberalism or liberalism was, was jettisoned, and if a comprehensive mobilization of the economy on a war footing were organized, I would say that Russia would be economically thriving and ordinary Russians would be doing much better than they are. They're not doing so, as badly as portrayed in the West and certainly not as badly as, you know, rub, the ruble rubble thing that you quoted Biden as saying. But certainly I would say that they could be doing a lot better. And of course, the more closely they integrate with China, I would say the opportunity to learn from how China manages its economy will also expand. And I would add to that, of course, being in Moscow, you are in the richest part of Russia. Yeah. And that should never be forgotten. Often no Western journalists do forget it. The effect of the shift to the East is a massive expansion of the second pole of attraction for wealth. I think it's very early days to see what the effect of that will be. But if there is a redistribution of capital flows within Russia, I think that will start to have an effect on the living standards of people uh, in, in the relatively poorer parts of Russia, where there's no doubt. But uh, not because of sanctions, but just because of the inequalities in Russia, that the pressure has been very great. Over at patreon.com slash geopolitical economy, I asked patrons if they had questions for you all. And we have several excellent questions. One of them is, is related directly to this, about the effects of sanctions and about Russia's integration with China economically. This is from Brian Hopkins. I'll just read it because it's an, there are several questions here, but I, I think you all can deal with them very well. How are Western sanctions affecting Russia's gross capital flows? 
Is Russia finding sufficient domestic or international capital to replace the loss of European manufactured goods and industrial equipment? How is the Russian Federation structuring the replacement of professional services, financial services, which previously were provided by Western firms? Are they relying on private firms or more direct state control? And is there any sign of a convergence on the market value of these services in the Asian markets? And how would the market value of these services in Russia and Asia compare to the market value of these services in Western banking centers? So several questions in there, but I'm curious what you all think about those questions. Um, sure. I mean, I, I can I can take a first stab at it. So first of all, uh, as far as import substitution is concerned, that is to say the replacement of the goods that were previously imported from Europe, that has is happening extensively. Essentially, practically all of these things, uh, the uh, European goods in terms of ordinary consumer goods have been replaced and they're not necessarily being particularly missed. I should add, by the way, that this, uh, uh, the sanctions from uh, uh, of goods, uh, you know, the, 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 the cessation of exports of goods from Europe actually began to take place going back to 2014 after the Maidan and Crimea events and so on. And of course, since that time, what has happened is, of course, that uh, the Russian government has invested a considerable amount of effort in revitalizing its agricultural sector, which has actually made Russia once again into a major Russian agricultural exporter. So in terms of food security, I think the Russians have done very well. In terms of other things, I would say it's a mixed picture. In many cases, I think the Russian uh, manufacturers have taken up the, uh, the, the, the challenge and they have, they have uh, done very well. But there are probably, and I don't have a full count on it, but probably a lot of goods that are not available right now because Russian manufacturers are not stepping up, etc. But again, it's not visible. You know, you can, you know, uh, the, apart from the few boarded up stores, the street and economic life looks quite ordinary. Uh, finally, uh, on the services part, actually, that's something that I would like to inquire further into it mm. and get back to you about it, because it's a very good question. And I think it should have an answer. I suspect that, uh, however, the, the, the answer will be probably something like this. You know, the services of Western Western professional services, business services, etc., have always been something of a, shall we say, a, 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 a contract in the sense, or a, you know, it 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 has been a a, a luxury that one could dispense with because there are pr probably just as good uh, professionals in Russia, but Western services were preferred partly because the corporations commissioning them were Westerners, partly because of the aura that surrounds Western professional services, etc. So I suspect that a lot of Russian professionals had probably indeed stepped up. But in terms of whether their compensation today matches the, that which went to Western professionals, I suspect not, but it's something that one would have to get back on, uh, you know, get back to you on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a couple of things. People were quite disappointed that there was not a much greater investment in education because one of the things that came out of the conference we attended is Russia does lag behind in high tech and in rates. And we saw many, and it was a very data intense conference and we're going to try and persuade them to put the, uh, the presentations on a website somewhere so that English readers can see and get them translated. We're also going to try and establish uh, media dialogues where we'll have Russians speaking and being, you know, in discussion with you guys. And we 
we hope your guys will go and attend when, uh, uh, when, under when... Uh, under the rubric of the international manifesto yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Well, then under any rubric that we can get the discussion going because there's so little dialogue and there's so little understanding of what's really going on but i there's a couple of points one i think that the historic threat of uh, imperialism against russia has been very centered on the division of russia from china it was a very conscious move and there's some in my opinion very foolish moves by the russians in relation in the 50s in relation to china which allowed well forced china almost one might say to take the to, to go ahead with the, the the nixon visit and the opening and so on that's being healed and everybody's changing everybody's changing and it's a very exciting period in world history because what the americans don't understand is their own imperialism and if you're bombarding everybody with with hard propaganda lies in which you say everybody else is a jungle and we are the garden one of the mistakes you must not make if you intend to lie to people which i don't but is to believe your own lies and the the europeans and the americans believe their own lies which is incredibly stupid because they don't understand the deep-seated resentment that you found in the countries of the global south all over i mean on no other basis can you explain the reaction of african leaders to which is very supportive of russia and the uh, the, the, the very distance that have been taken by uh, south asian southeast asian countries towards the war the cold war against china we're coming into a new world whatever happens in russia and russia almost must be always must be situated in the world it's it's part of the world island one last thing which is a quite sensitive thing um the russian military has always been a great driving force of science and innovation i can remember as far back as 1987 when i was in russia and the only way you could get a television a color television set was to buy it from the army right because they, they had the product the, the the military has production facilities now we do know that that has been expanded and the sort of we might even call it a semi-command economy has been established over military suppliers but it, it's not wise to go around inquiring into this because uh, you know as 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 the wall street journal found you know it can be construed as espionage but you should bear in and, and quite right you know it's, it's very sensitive people people should not have access the west should not have access to what's going on in the military and the military supply industries and we wouldn't intend to change that but your listeners should bear in mind that the military is without doubt playing a driving force role in the economy as a whole um, and we have no idea what the extent of that is and and one should add to that that of course insofar as the uh, putin government has in fact taken the advice of the progressive left wing economists etc the economists that are talking about reorganizing the economy on a productive basis with you know the state playing a big role in it this has definitely happened in the military because uh, not long ago the russian government announced that it was essentially introducing gosplan or central planning in the military production sector which of course it needs to have and i should also add by the way that yes alan is absolutely right of course in the conference we saw 
uh, a statistic after statistic which was complaining about how Russia has fallen behind in science and technology, in innovation products, in high-tech products, etc., etc. But having said that, you know, if the state were to apply itself and 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 uh, to addressing this problem, and complaints like this should of course contribute to uh, addressing this, then Russia can have the kind of uh, Russian industry in general can have the kind of performance that its military uh, production facilities have done, which is that they are actually in many ways in terms of armaments at the cutting edge of armaments production because the Russians have developed these hypersonic missiles. They had already done this back in 2018. Um, and, uh, and, you know, in that year, Putin announced the arrival of these missiles in a very important speech. Um, but the point I'm trying to make is that they have done this. The West does not have hypersonic missiles and they are a game changer. So if Russia and, and just as China, if China now, you know, just today uh, it's being reported that the CEO of Huawei is saying, you know, this chips war is going to be nothing. We are going to become self-sufficient chips because essentially if these countries, which already have a lot of highly trained personnel, skilled personnel, highly educated personnel, if they roll up their sleeves and say, we're going to tackle this, they will be able to do it. And there was a very good instance of this at the last Valdar Discussion Club meeting we attended, remember in October, when there was an, a session on the Russian semiconductor industry. Yes. Now, where did the impasse for a semiconductor industry come? Because they were worried about being cut off from essential military supplies by the West. And you can say what you like about, you know, the, the need for capitalist society to be uh, superior to, you know, this terrible Soviet planning. But if the result of that is you don't get, if your missiles don't fly, then uh, you, you think again about ideology. Both of you mentioned that in this trip, compared to your previous trips, you've noticed that economists have become much more critical of neoliberalism maybe you wouldn't necessarily say that they've been advocating socialism, but more developmentalist, nationalist policies, economic nationalism. Um, there was a good question over at Patreon from Keith O'Brien asking if this crisis and the development of these more protectionist economic policies has led the Russian leadership to reassess its turn away from socialism in the 1990s. He notes that Putin has made a few kind of vague hints in the past year He's made a few speeches criticizing neoliberalism, specifically singling out neoliberalism. I'm curious if you have gotten the same uh, impression in your time in Russia that there is a reconsideration of maybe re returning back to some, you, you mentioned in the military, there's a return to state planning, but in other segments of the economy, kind of revisiting Soviet era policies. Well, I would say that uh, number one, uh, certainly economists are talking about that. Now, one has to take that, take this in a, you know, put it in the Russian context. Obviously, uh, in Russia, uh, particularly in a, among the generation that have some experience of uh, life under the Soviet Union and what went wrong, particularly in the 1970s and 80s and so on, all those people will have their own criticisms of what you know soviet policy and you know certain excesses of soviet policy etc but barring those criticisms i would say absolutely yes there is a huge uh, there's an enormous understanding that there were many things that the soviet union got right and that it's important to return to that minus the ideology and that's also partly why china is important because they tend to see china as having been much more pragmatic. Uh, 
much less ideological, focused on developing the national economy rather than some ideological commitment to, uh, 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 you know, to some version of socialism, etc. So what's actually happening is that even though a lot of people, partly because of the Soviet experience, will not necessarily say that they are socialist, the policies that they are ending up supporting are effectively some sort of socialist developmentalist policies because in order to make Russia resilient you have to expand demand domestically which means you have to ensure that ordinary Russians are earning enough to be able to consume uh, uh, what Russian industry is producing thereby providing an important demand stimulus and then of course uh, also ensuring that Russian industry is capable of becoming technologically sophisticated, mm -hmm. competitive at a world level etc. So all of this will require pretty comprehensive state intervention. I think that another thing which is very difficult is, we, you know, there has not been enough dialogue between Russia and the West for a genuine understanding of the stage that things have reached. So we're, we're sort of sitting on the, for, from our point of view, we're sitting on the outside. But of course, the people we're talking to are sitting on the inside. And what you will find in Russia is that the left tends to be highly critical of Putin. Now, the West has this crazy idea that because they are critical of Putin, they're critical of the war. Actually, it's the opposite. Their criticism of Putin is he didn't go all the way much earlier. He pussyfooted around, etc. But because of the, 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 the stored up resentment, um, if I can put it that way, but there is, you know, they want Putin in power. They don't want anybody else in power. That, that one should be totally clear about that. Support for, for Putin is like an all-time high, unlike the support for the leaders of the West, one might say. Um, but because of that, you may get a certain amount of forcefulness in the way that people draw your attention to the weaknesses of the Putin leadership. And so, uh, as, the, as the military loggers say, you know, sometimes one must take it with a pinch of salt. But there is no doubt that there's a great deal of frustration that the opportunities that Russia now has are not being taken full advantage of. The other thing is the amazing creativity of the thinking that one finds among these people. Uh, I mean, Russia's intellectual capacities were always phenomenally high, uh, and they actually increased under the Stalinist era. It's a great, thing, great mistake to think that people stopped thinking uh, under, uh, under Stalin. They didn't. They, they thought even more creatively. So one really needs to digest all these papers and what they're saying. I mean, the, the, what's experimental philosophy was one of the ones that I was particularly attracted to. So there's a, there's a lot going on. It's a very um, productive, intellectually productive time, one hopes, politically productive time in, in Russian life. And from speaking with people in, in Russia, what is your impression, especially among the older generations, of how they view the Soviet Union. A poll from 2020 found that 75% of Russians considered the Soviet era the greatest time in their country's history. And that was acknowledged even by the Moscow Times, which is an anti-Putin, you know, pro-Western newspaper. Um, do you think that this kind, people call it nostalgia, but in many cases, it's not nostalgia. It's actually just recognizing that there were social programs and forms of support that existed then that don't exist at the same level today not just among the political leadership, but among average Russians, do you think that there is this kind of desire to return, maybe not entirely to the Soviet Union, but to many of its policies? I think that the, the, thing, the, the thing that 
most affected people's attitudes to the Soviet Union is the social programs, because they lived through the experience of shock therapy, which was absolutely dreadful. I mean, it's now being characterized by some people as an economic genocide. That the, the actual level of uh, what is it, life expectancy fell by three years. Um, so people were killed by those policies, quite literally. And what was that was done was the removal of the social programs, the removal of health, the removal of care, the removal of various social security, of education, and so on. That's what people, I think, are overly nostalgic for and want back. They want it back. I mean, when they say 73% think that things were better under the Soviet, what they mean is they think they're worse now. If you've got to, what they think is worse is the social provision. I think that people are not so keen on planning because planning was done out of necessity in ways that were, um, how can I put it, you know, difficult to live with. Uh, people didn't manage to do it, find ways around with it. But I think if you say, um, another poll which said, do you want to go back to state planning? You, you may get a different response. Yeah, and I, I'd like to add two or three points to that. I mean, number one, and most broadly, I would say that a lot of Soviet, a uh, uh, lot of people in Russia today would agree with the two statements that that Putin made about the Soviet Union that the, that the that the dissolution of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical disaster uh, in history, and uh, that all, that really refers to the fact that the Soviet Union, when it existed, was a great power. It was. You know, it was one of two big powers in, in the world. And the reason for that power was, of course, the fact that the Russians had, had made a revolution. Uh, so so that's the first take of his statements. And the second of his statements is also quite interesting. He said that those who do not, uh, who those who do not wish to bring back, the, sorry, those who do not feel nostalgic about the Soviet Union have no heart. But those who wish to bring it back have no head. So the point being that uh, there were there was something good, something's good about it. But I think that that the new way of going around creating a prosperous, broad, broad based prosperity in Russia would have to involve different methods. Uh, so 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 in that sense, I think that the that the feeling among Russians is, I would say, something something like that. Um, and the loss of great power status certainly is 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 uh, felt more widely because at the moment this is you know essentially Russia is being treated. I mean you know ordinary Russians are completely puzzled at the Russophobia in the West, and it's not you know the criticism is not against Putin as you know it's against Russia and Russians as well. You know, Russian artists have been banned in the West and, and, and books are being banned in the West and so on and so forth. Um, another point that I think one should make in this regard, you know, in terms of, you know, are people feeling nostalgic under the pressure of sanctions? Will Russia become much more of a planned economy, etc., of necessity? And I think the answers are yes. One way of thinking about this whole um question of whether the Russians are going to go back to the Soviet era or not is the following. Essentially, if you think about it, what we have seen in terms of actually existing socialism in our world, that is beginning with the Russian Revolution, continue, continuing with China, Vietnam, Cuba, etc., This is these are really forms of opposition to imperialism. And opposition to imperialism must necessarily take the form of increasing the productive capacity of your own society. So it has to be developmentalist. It can't just be, you know, an equal sharing of poverty. It You have to bring your society and its productive ability up to a point where it is able to afford a broad, you know, 
prosperity in order to create legitimacy and then also to have the industrial power to defend itself eventually, both economically and of course militarily. So in many ways, imperialism, the, the actually existing socialisms have been the product of imperialism. And because imperialism continues to essentially sort of you know, although it is declining, it continues to fight for its life, you know, fight for its right to impose itself on the rest of the world, as the West, led by President Biden's United States, have been doing. This means that the rest of the world still needs some version of socialism. And therefore, it is inevitable that Russians will find their own way to some version of that if they are going to withstand this 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 uh, uh, this assault by the West and by the United States. Have you seen the impact of de-dollarization in your time in, in Russia, the use of other currencies? And in the past few weeks alone, just, you know, in March and February, we saw a significant escalation of the attempt to de-dollarize. We saw countries like Brazil sign an agreement with China to do bilateral trade in their local currencies. We see that India is also doing bilateral trade in rupees. Um, is that something that you've seen? Maybe new payment systems, the use of the MIR system in Russia? Well, uh, I, I'll just say one thing. Number one, yesterday, yesterday or the day before it was reported, the day before it was reported that France has agreed to buy oil from China in yuan. Now, this, I would say, is an even bigger deal. But I agree. Brazil, India, all of these things are very important. And de-dollarization is proceeding apace. Meanwhile, uh, payment systems are also being created. And Alan and I, because... We do some, you know, we work with people here in various ways and they pay us small amounts of money and they are finding it difficult to pay us in Western currencies. So essentially, we've opened a bank account and we've acquired our first MIR card. So there you go. Micro de-dollarization. <laughs> That's right. Which was an imposed. People were not able to pay us, even honoraria. So, but it was a very interesting experience because it's a highly advanced system. It, it, it integrates with your phone, with your SIM card, with everything else. I mean, of course, one always says nice things about a new system in the first flush of purchase. So we'll, we'll get but, back but, to it. But I think that the Russians seem to be coping perfectly well. They have, I mean, you know, in having been out, you know, out and about going to cafes, restaurants, shops, etc. People are paying with their cards everywhere and so on. So they have their own independent, perfectly good financial system. And what about the Russian political system? Uh, there was a question about this over at Patreon from Michael, and he noted that, you know, in, in the West, Putin is portrayed as this maniacal villain who controls everything. But you've mentioned that there is internal criticism. There is a dynamic political culture inside Russia, a debate going on. How, how do you see Russian political life and the political debate going on? Well, I would say that in Western countries, particularly at the beginning of the special military operation, um, uh, uh, we were shown these images of young people protesting. And there is no doubt that there is a section of society that is critical of the war. Uh, this would particularly include, I would say, the, some of the relatively more affluent people, some of the professional managerial class who, are, have who have deep links with Western societies and so on. They are probably quite closely connected with intellectuals in Western countries who have been extremely critical. Probably some of them have lost friends and connections and so on and so 
so forth. So the, this relatively thin layer is probably critical of uh, the special military operation. But the rest of Russian society, from what we can tell, and we've talked to lots of people, uh, we, basically they are saying, why aren't you moving faster? What's the special military operations business? Call it a war and be done with it. Protect the four Western provinces. Uh, uh, do what you can to ensure that Ukraine is never used by the West as a, essentially as a launching pad for operations in Russia as in fact, it has been uh, at this. It has become at this point. So why why isn't this over now? And do what it takes to do it. I mean, this should have been over within weeks. And why has it taken so long? And we know that part of the reason it's taken so long is precisely that Putin has not called for a full scale mobilization of the population in terms of you know recruitment, and nor has he called for a full scale economic mobilization. And some would say, if necessary, if that's what it takes to end this quickly, do it now. And and this is what uh, this this is the nature of the criticism that we feel is uh, is the main criticism. Uh, here and many would say that, uh, and you know, of course, I should also add that from what I can tell, without a full-scale mobilization, there's a perfectly good rationale for the p policies being pursued by Putin in the war and his generals in the war, which is to lose as few lives as possible. Which also should be underlined. Uh, you know, I do read a lot of mainstream Western media just because I need to know what they're saying, and it really shocks me that they are always portraying the Russians as essentially being ready to throw lives at tanks and so on. And in fact, the fact, the reality has been the opposite. It's the Ukrainians that have suffered a far higher degree of casualties because they have been the one defending indefensible positions, whether it is in Bakhmut or in elsewhere. And every time they have made gains, this was because the Russians tactically withdrew because they did not wish to lose extra lives. So they said, if we can't defend this exposed position, better to withdraw and, and, and Kherson, that's Kherson, right, that's the Kherson, one, Kherson. Yeah. Uh, better to withdraw than to lose lives. And this is what is being portrayed as Ukrainian triumph. So, so unfortunately, and, and I should add one other thing, which is there are, I mean, this, I've never ever met a single Russian who is not has, does not have some Ukrainian connections, and we keep meeting more. And the the fact that you know the the welfare of Ukrainian Ukrainian Ukrainians is close to the heart of Russians. The fact of the matter, and and they are all very aware that what the West is doing in the name of saving Ukraine, in the name of helping Ukraine, is ensuring its destruction. Uh, they are fighting, of course, as is widely being said, they are fighting Russia to the last Ukrainian. I would add something that I think is quite important, which is that when we on the left, what I think of as the genuine anti-imperialist left, discuss the democracy of China or the democracy of Vietnam or the democracy of Cuba, it's very clear, and you'll see many international manifesto group, um, well, several webinars where this is emphatically stated by Chinese, uh, you know, very independent, young, sort of critical thinkers and, and Vietnamese and Cuban. They, they, I think, rightly regard their democracy as superior and that the Western model is not the only model. I think in Russia, they're still in the process of evolving an alternative model. I'm, I don't jump in with everybody who says that the whole thing is completely dysfunctional. I mean, it, it, it can appear like that, but things get done. Things get done. Uh, I think in terms of the access of citizens to power, it's probably uh, needs a bit of work, we might say. 
But I also think that the level of openness that you find amongst the Russians that we talk with, people on the whole are not scared to speak their opinions. I mean, there are certain areas where you have to be very careful. Criticizing the army is a crime in Russian law. Many people have been critical of that fact, but it is, right? And there are, so, there are some things you can say and some things you, can, you, you, you can't say. It's not, as in the West, it's not arbitrary, right? It's not somebody suddenly attacks you and, and denounces you to your superiors because uh, they've got it in for you. Uh, the rules are fairly clear. So I think that there's a certain level of openness which, which is superior to what I find in the West. People will talk to you. It's amazing, you know, people don't have any fear of, of discussing in a very open way what their differences are with Putin, everything like that. Um, but the, I think access, my impression is, access to power has not been developed in the same way that it has in China and Vietnam and Cuba where the people have genuine confidence in their in their political system. No, I mean, Russia is on a long learning curve. I should also add that, you know, earlier you were asking about the reorientation towards China. And I would say that, you know, Russia has spent the last many centuries being quite oriented towards Europe. I mean, from the days of Peter the Great and Catherine the Great and what have you, Russia has oriented itself to the West. And this this is going to require a certain degree of reorientation, but the reorientation is ongoing from that point of view as well. And then in terms of uh, Russian politics and democracy more generally, it will be interesting, of course, next year, I believe, is going to be an election year. So uh, uh, again, and naturally, this uh, war, this conflict, whatever you want to call it, is going to be the essential backdrop to that. So it will be interesting to see. Uh, Putin has not yet declared that he will run, but he will probably almost uh, surely run again. And if his popularity keeps up the way it is right now, he's going to win again. And uh, and the question then will become, you know, what happens thereafter? One final point I would make is that, you know, one of the interesting papers in the conference that we attended, given by one Professor Kleiner, was very interesting. He said, you know, that uh, some economies can be managed, you know, from a sort of a macro level at, uh, you know, at the grand centralized level. But in Russia, he says that we are probably better off looking at what he called the meso level. So the mm. level of sectors and regions. And I think that what he is sort of uh, uh, implying is that any kind of, uh, of advances towards planning both regionally and sectorally will advance better if you are planning at a lower slightly less centralized level. And I think Russia's regions uh, also have a very vibrant and interesting politics, uh, which has included, for example, the election of people who have been uh, elected on fairly left-wing platforms, whether uh, they are formerly members of the Communist Party or not, but they are, you know, the, the people who are elected, they may or may not be members of the Communist Party, but they cooperate with it. They uh, they have uh, programs for broad-scale development, etc., etc. And I think that this will also be quite an interesting thing to follow in the future. You see, things have contradictory effects. So one of the effects of the smart vote campaign of Navalny is all kinds of really peculiar people got elected on the Communist Party list. You know, so uh, you win some, you lose some, as you might say. Well, as we start wrapping up here, I want to talk about the situation um, in terms of violence in Russia. You mentioned that in, in terms of the economy, it's not very apparent that it's a war economy, that the, that 
there are measures being taken to diversify economic production and such. And from what I've seen, at least in the media, there hasn't been a lot of violence on the ground in Russia, but there have been a few attacks. And in fact, when you were in St. Petersburg on, that was uh, April 2nd, there was a Russian military correspondent, a, a journalist who was reporting on the war named Vladin Tatarsky, who was killed in a terror attack on a cafe in St. Petersburg. And there were also, by the way, 32 other people wounded in this attack. Uh, you actually said you heard, you told me before the interview that you actually heard the explosion. Can you talk about that? And have you seen any other signs of violence uh, that has spilled over into Russia? Well, we not only heard it, we were passing by. And I mean, you know, we know explosions because we've been in them. So both of us thought, hey, something, something's really happened. And it turned out we, we didn't find out till we got to Moscow that somebody was assassinated. I wouldn't say that that's Russian violence, that's Ukrainian violence. There's no doubt in my mind, and the evidence is mounting, that this was a Ukrainian operation. The girl herself seems to have been somewhat gullible or, or, or misguided, and her husband immediately, well, he couldn't do anything else, could he? Dissociated himself from it and so on. But the, 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 Zelensky's hand is on this. I mean, he, he's issued. The, the minute Ukrainians are... The Ukrainian leadership issues of denial, you know, that they did it, frankly. I'm sorry, but, you know, that's the way things go. Um, but I wouldn't call that Russian violence. It's not a violence intrinsic to Russian society. On the contrary, it's a frontal attack on press freedom. And I think it's absolutely amazing that you have not seen from the West any outright condemnation of this or any demand that transparency be given to ascertain where the hand of the Ukrainian SBU were when this was going on. People get very upset because somebody from the Wall Street Journal makes some very dubious inquiries, which could definitely be construed, in my opinion, probably were uh, tantamount to espionage at the very least. And this is an outrage and all Americans have to leave Russia, Biden says, you know, you're not safe. Well, here people are being assassinated and 32 people killed for speaking. Injured, injured. The journalists, journalists, sorry, injured, yeah. Journalists yeah. Are, are under threat. Where, where are the Union, National International Union of Journalists? Where are all the, the, the hawks for press freedom? Um, I haven't heard a single condemnation from the West. You know, I mean, act. that's so true, Alan. And, you know, Ben, I mean, what we are looking at here <clears throat> is that the imperialist foundations of Western cultural institutions and Western institutions more generally is being, uh, you know, is being exposed. I mean, you are all, you know, you are, you are, you, you are happy to stand up for the rights of certain chosen, you know, elements of third world societies, you know, uh, you are suitably admiring of Western countries and so on, but you are not willing to stand up on principle that journalists should not be murdered. Um, so, you know, this is, this is really a, a sad fact. But yeah, for the rest, I would simply say that, you know, beyond these terrorist attacks like like that of uh, uh, this Tatarsky and also earlier, of course, of Dugina. Mm. Um, we don't see violence. I mean, street life in Russia is completely normal. There are, of course, Russian society has having suffered from terrorism in the past. You know, there, as you know, there were Beslan and, and so on. They, they, they do take certain precautionary measures when you 
are, uh, you know, entering or leaving public buildings and so on. But beyond that, I mean, and that has been going on for, for yonks anyway. Beyond that, you don't really see anything that uh, uh, makes you think that this is somehow a society under siege in some sense or, or even at war, as we were saying earlier. Yeah. You do see street fights, but then I didn't see street fights worse than anything I saw in Glasgow. When, when you, did you when see street looking, fights? Well, you weren't looking, that's the thing. Huh? You know, you have to know what you're looking for if you see. Okay. No, I mean, just kids fighting each other, oh, yeah. you know. It's a, it, it's a rough and tumble society at certain levels, right? Um, and then people hug each other after it, you know, that, that sort of stuff, right? Um, but nothing, nothing compares with what I saw when I was living in Glasgow. Not that Glasgow isn't the most wonderful place in the world, it is. Um, you have to know the rules, that's all on the street. But political violence, I don't think, I, you, not even you don't hear stories of it. People don't say, you know, people came to my door and knocked and said, if you say that again, you'll never see your wife again, or that sort of thing. Maybe there are things that we have not had reported, but I haven't seen them and I haven't seen much in the Western press. I, I don't think that goes on. I think that, you know, prepare to be corrected, right? As one always must be if one doesn't have all the evidence. But I think that the violence that people in Russia are now experiencing is the full head-on violence of Ukrainian fascism. Supported by the West. Supported by the West. And yeah. the role of fascism should not be understated. I mean, I don't know if you're aware of this list called Mirodvoyets, World, World, um, World Palace, basically, which is a list that is maintained by extremely right-wing fascist forces in Ukraine, which is a list of people who basically should be targets for assassination. Dugina was one of them. It's, it's an intimidatory apparatus. Your name appears on it and you think, my God, I better keep my mouth shut. And OK, that you could say that's done by a bunch of sort of, you know, off the roof uh, right wingers and the government has nothing to do with it. But there's been in quiet demand after demand that uh, that Zelensky should close it down. He doesn't do it. He doesn't do it because the whole apparatus of the Ukrainian government is utterly dependent on its connection to the fascists. And when people talk about, um, oh, Ukraine's not fascist because Zelensky is Jewish, they missed the point. The point is not that the whole of Ukraine society from top to bottom is fascist, including its leaders, but that it is in hock to fascism. And I would say something else. I think the United States of America is now in hock to Ukrainian fascism. They know what's going on. They probably even manage it in many cases. So I think this is a very shocking period in, 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 in Western history in which the, the leading so-called democratic powers are actually directly linked into fascist forces and use them as a means of getting their way. And you haven't seen the last of that yet. Yeah, I mean, this just goes to show that when capitalism in, is in crisis, it relies on fascism. And now we know that this is not just within countries, but also internationally. Yeah, you mentioned the... Uh, hysteria that's going on in the Western media over Russia's detention of a Wall Street Journal correspondent, Evan Gershkovich, who was accused of spying. And the ultimate irony of this is that the British Foreign Secretary, James Cleverly, released this statement condemning Russia's decision to de detain a U.S. journalist. Meanwhile, the most famous journalist in the world, Julian Assange, is rotting in a high security, maximum security British prison, uh, Belmarsh. And the top UN expert on torture has said that he's been subject to psychological torture, Julian Assange. So 
the imperial hypocrisy is very difficult to overstate. But um, just as, as we conclude here, um, we're already at an hour, so I'll just ask one final question. Are there any other topics that we didn't discuss that you think it's important for our audience to, to know about Russia? I would say that the most important thing, I don't know if it's a topic to discuss, is for a genuine dialogue with Russia. And I think that people like yourself and ourselves can do something. One of the things we want to do is to um, find Russians who are willing to speak in panels with Western interlocutors, or they, they can be interlocutors, I don't mind which way it goes, and, and get some kind of discussion going. Because it's extraordinary if you look at, you know, say, uh, Venezuela, there's discussions every every which way about what's happening in Venezuela and the West. The West has a very high level of consciousness about what's happening in the West. People in the West just don't know what's happening in Russia, and 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 they should be speaking to Russians. There's no other way to find out. And I think also that you know there is a, a, a big spectrum of opinion. There is a spectrum of opinion of you know. I mean, although bulk of the people in Russia, like like we were saying are broadly supportive of the war, they also have very interesting perspectives and interesting ways of looking at it. And there are also people who are, you know, taking positions quite close to that in the West. So they, are, they all exist and they are all saying, having their say in Russia today. Yeah. What will be needed, though, is tolerance. Because you can't talk to a country which has been through a completely different history to your own and expect that people will just come out with things that confirm your prejudices. You're going to hear things you don't like. Actually, I would say more than tolerance. I think that the West needs to have curiosity about Russia, just like Ben, the questions you posed and the questions that your Patreon subscribers have posted. Mm. I think that's the sort of curiosity mm. we need. I think we need to ask questions and we need to listen to the answers. Yeah, I mean, attitudes in Russia to the, um, the far right, not the fascist world, maybe the fascist right, but to Trumpism and forces like that can be very ambiguous because they will say, well, these are the only people that have actually stood up for what we believe to be right. And your bloody left are the, leading the, 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 the charge against them. You can't expect in that situation that somebody will just say, oh, yes, you know, Biden is more progressive than Trump. They're not going to say that. They don't look at things in that way. So you have to listen. You have to sit and be prepared to listen and accept what people say without condemning it before you've even got it out of their mouths. Well, I want to thank you, Radhika and Alan, for providing your perspective and telling us, sharing us uh, your experience, sharing your experiences with us. Uh, Radhika and Alan are both part of the International Manifesto Group, and they are both directors of the Geopolitical Economy Research Group. Um, I also want to thank all of the patrons of the show over at patreon.com slash geopolitical economy for submitting some great questions. I will have both Radhika and Alan back soon. Radhika and I are going to be continuing a series based on her new book, Capitalism, Coronavirus, and War. And she also has her program here, Geopolitical Economy Hour. So I'm sure she'll be talking more about her experience in Russia and the proxy war in Ukraine. I want to thank everyone for watching or listening, and I'll see you all next time.